This morning, we are carrying on in our series in 2 Corinthians. Um, It's called Weak But Strong. Uh, And basically, the aim of uh, this series that we're doing is to go through the book, passage by passage, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, not missing anything out, just to see, actually, what does it look like for God to use our weakness, our, our smallest parts, our mistakes, our bad choices, to actually bring glory for his kingdom? What does that look like? We all recognize that we're not perfect people. Well, I recognize that. I don't know about you guys. You might be perfect, but I'm not perfect. Um, And it's just like God takes our imperfections and uses them for the glory of his kingdom. It's the most amazing thing. And so we're just walking through this book, um, passage by passage, verse by verse, to just start working out how how do we find God in our weakness? And how do we we connect with him in a way that our weakness uh, is suddenly made a strength for him and his kingdom? So we're really excited about this series just now. And today we're moving into chapter 2. Uh, we'll be going from uh, chapter 2, verse 12, to chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, and this letter from Paul, just to give you a wee bit of a backdrop for this letter, he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth into difficult circumstances. Uh, he's, uh, the, the, the letter he wrote, uh, which was 1 Corinthians, uh, would have been right at the start of those guys becoming a church uh, and working out what life was like. And this letter comes a little bit later and there's some problems developing in the church. Actually, a, a bunch of people have come in and said, you, you know how this message of Jesus being enough is actually not enough. You have to do some more stuff. You have to work hard and you have to really try and be a good person. You have to follow the laws really well. And then that combined with Jesus uh, gets you into heaven or gets you a relationship with God. Uh, And so Paul's writing into this circumstance where he's like, guys, it's just Jesus. It's nothing that we've done. It's nothing that we can do. It's Jesus who makes the difference for us. And so that's the backdrop of where he's writing this letter. And so Paul is writing this letter to bring clarity, challenge, and redirection for the church to get them back on track. Uh, And before we read this passage today, I want to tell you about a letter that I once received, because today is all about letters, and I want to tell you about a letter I once received. Um, I was 19 years old, uh, I'd just finished my first year at university, uh, and I was about to go off on a trip to Mozambique. Uh, I'd uh, got in touch with this organization who ran an orphanage for babies who'd been abandoned and left in uh, outside police stations in the capital city of Mozambique called Maputo. Um, and so me and a couple of friends were like, we'd love to go across there. We'd love to spend some time there and, and do something, whether it's about painting buildings or doing something, we'd love to do that. So we saved up. I saved up for a whole year. Uh, and, and the week before we were supposed to go, the, the, the lady who was running this trip phoned me up and she was like, Scott, you're 200 pounds short uh, of where you need to be. And I had cleared out everything. We'd done fundraisers above fundraisers above fundraisers. We'd done raffles and sponsored walks and hill climbs and everything. I'd worked the whole summer. I'd raided every penny out of my piggy bank. There was no way I could have got any more money in the weeks before this was happening. I'd literally done everything that I could. And she was like, you need another £200 to, to finish your payments before you can come in this. And I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't very organized back then. I thought it was done. And so I was like, where am I going to get £200 from? So hung up the phone and I just prayed. I was like, God, if this is meant to be, if I'm supposed to be here, would you bail me out of this bad situation that I've got myself into? Um, five minutes later, a letter comes through the door with my name on it. Literally five minutes later. Uh, and it just says my name on it. And I'll open it up, and at the top of the letter is the words, the Letitia Waugh bequest. 
And I was like, that's really weird. I've never heard of anyone called Letitia Waugh before. Uh, And so I started reading through this letter, and and this is basically the gist of it. It said this, Dear Scott, as someone who grew up in the life of our church and who's gone on to complete their first year of further education, you've been granted access to the Letitia Waugh Fund. This money was left by Letitia Waugh to help support and encourage young believers in their further education to be excellent contributors to society. I hereby enclose a check for you. And the check was for exactly £200. It turned out a lady who died in 1928 had left money at the church I'd grown up in as a child that I wasn't even part of anymore. And uh, after I finished this first year at uni, she had this rule where it was like anyone who'd been through the Sunday school and who'd got there, who'd come out the end was to get this £200 given to them at the end of their first year of higher education. I was like, that is unbelievable. That letter brought life for me. It brought me a real sense of who Jesus was and what he was all about. It bailed me out of a bad situation and actually it helped me discover something of Jesus that I'd never known before, his, grateful, his, his provision, even in amongst our weakness and stupidity. In this passage today uh, that we're about to read, Paul talks about us being letters to the world, letters handwritten by Jesus with a message that is meant to go to the world. And actually, that letter that we bring to the world is supposed to do the exact same thing as what that letter did for me. It's supposed to bring life and provision and hope for a different future for people from where they are just now. And so we are going to read that passage together. Um, I'm going to pray just before we do that. Father God, we value and honor your word. We love the Bible. We love that you uh, compile together this incredible book of wisdom and knowledge of historical uh, celebration of what you have done and, and a book that points to the future of what you will do. And so we just pray as we read this passage just now, would you help us soak up every bit of goodness, every bit of wisdom, every bit of encouragement and challenge that this word has to offer today, Lord. Amen. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 3, verse 6. Uh, It says this, Now I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and who uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. So if we are handwritten letters from God, if we are letters written not with ink and not on stone tablets, but written by the Holy Spirit on our hearts, 
to, to go into this world, then what clues are there in this passage to, to, to who's writing this letter and to what is on that letter and who's to receive this letter? And I think there are a couple of things, there are a few things that Paul says that gives us a clue about who Jesus is and how he relates to us. And the first thing I want to focus on is this. In verse 14, he says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. I love that description of us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And the first read, it can sound a bit negative, can't it? It can sound like, you know, we're, we're somehow trapped in chains following behind Jesus. But actually, as you read into it a bit more, it's like what, what Jesus uh, is, is to, what Paul's talking about here is that our hearts are so captured by Jesus, so in love with him because of what he has done for us, that, that we feel this urge to follow him where he goes, that as he victoriously proceeds, that we go after him just in absolute absolute awe of who he is because he gave his life for us. I don't know if you've ever had anyone give their life for you before, whether someone's given you a kidney or dived in front of a bullet for you or anything like that, but that, I guess, would give you a little glimpse of what Jesus has done. He gave his life so that we could experience freedom. As our hearts are captured by him, it's also an invitation to join him in the victory that he has accomplished. On that day on the cross, he, he destroyed the power of sin and death. He destroyed the power of darkness. And so as our hearts get captured by this wonderful author who pens this letter on our hearts and the world, we're in this procession of victory with him. I love it. Captured in the greatest victory we've ever seen. Um, I love weddings. Uh, they're such a brilliant thing to be a part of as a pastor. It's kind of like half really good fun and half terrifying for me at the same time. I'll let you in a wee secret here. Uh, the, the paperwork of a wedding terrifies me because it's so official. You have to use an exact type of fountain pen and you have to get it right in the boxes. If you get it wrong, the whole thing's null and void. You have to go and marry the people again at a different time. It's really serious. And so that stresses me out because I'm not a very organized sort of like official person. And so on that day, I, it's almost like, a, you know, when Iron Man puts on his suit and becomes like Iron Man. I become like officiado man. I'm like, I'm going to be efficient today and I'm going to do it. And I probably look entirely different from how I normally look, but I do love weddings. And one of my favorite parts of a wedding day that I absolutely love is the moment uh, where the groom turns around for the first time and sees his bride walking down the aisle towards him. And everyone in the room is thinking the exact same thing at the same time. We're all thinking, cry you cry now. And I bring tissues and everything. I ham it up beforehand. I'm like, I've got tissues on me. So if you're, if you're going to cry, I'm ready for that. You know, everyone's expecting it. So, you know, and I just love it. I love that. If you've never seen that happen before, I'd love to show you this video. This guy just encapsulates it perfectly what that looks like. I love that. I love that moment. 
And it just, there's something about that that just ties in with this letter. You know, Jesus captures our hearts. Jesus captures our hearts. In the same way that that guy was like, he was overcome. He's just like, in this moment, I'm so overcome with my love for you as I see you walk towards us. It's the same way with Jesus because of what he has done. He's not looking to capture us in chains, but he's looking to capture our hearts in a way that causes us to follow him wherever he's going. We find ourselves looking at Jesus and passionately applauding his victory. What he did was miraculous and incredible and and unrepeatable but at the same time as that the love that he demonstrated for us in that moment is overwhelming and and life-changing and and just almost unexplainable he gave it all so that we're on our efforts to to be with god and to be good enough to meet with the father we fell so short And the moment he gave his life, we suddenly had a way. It's the most wonderful thing. I love the way uh, that in Paul's letters to the Romans, he puts it like this in chapter 8, verse 38. He says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is both the sacrifice and friend and the conquering king, because he didn't stay dead. Three days after his death on the cross, he rose from the grave, and in that moment, the power of sin and death and darkness was destroyed and defeated. They lost their power to hold and to bond and to cast fear and to spread anxiety and pain. He is victorious. Death couldn't hold him. The veil that was between us and God was suddenly torn in two. And we were able to have full access, full relationship with our Father, fullness of eternal life. That's the author of our letters. That's the one who's writing on our hearts. The conquering king and the sacrificing friend. I love the way that Brennan Manning puts it in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He says, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. As we are right now, if nothing ever changed, Jesus loves us unimaginably. He longs to know us. He longs to pen a story on our hearts that is different from the one the world would look to pen on it. He longs to draw us closer to our Heavenly Father, welcomed by Him into an eternal victory and an eternal relationship with Him. And so if Jesus is the author of our hearts, if Jesus is the one who's looking to write those words of hope and, and affirmation on our hearts, then what, what is it? What are our letters saying? What is it that he's actually penning on our hearts for the world to see? Because Jesus doesn't become the author of our hearts automatically. You know, Jesus isn't like a SWAT team. He's not going to kick down the doors of your heart and step in and grab the pen off you and be like, right, this is my heart now. I'm going to do the writing. You guys can go away. Like, I'm sorting this out now. Like, he, he needs to be invited. It's a choice that we make to hand over the pen of our lives and say, Jesus, I, I would love you to be writing this story on my heart. So when people look at our lives Are we inviting Jesus to be the author? And if so, what is it that has been written on our hearts? What what story is unfolding as people watch us living out our lives? 
what narrative is dominating our interactions and our experiences with the world around us. It says in verse 2 of chapter 3, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry written, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Unbelievably, not only are we saved by the Savior, but we then become his primary way of letting the world know of the good news that's happened. We become like the primary uh, point of contact for God with the world as people encounter us, they encounter Jesus in us, they encounter the words that he's written on our hearts. I love Paul puts it uh, in that procession. He talks about an aroma. He says like people smell the aroma of Jesus on us. We've probably all been in places where we've smelled overwhelmingly good smells (laughs) and sometimes overwhelmingly bad smells And it affects your whole thing. It's really hard to be in a room where there's an overwhelmingly bad smell. And yet it's lovely and you want to stay forever in a place where there's an overwhelmingly good smell. I remember my dad bought a bread maker when we were younger. And that smell of waking up to bread in the morning, it was like, I don't ever want to leave the house again. This is amazing. When I went to that trip in Mozambique, uh, when we were working in the orphanage, we went out a few times into the city to do some different stuff. And on one day on our itinerary, it said, uh, visit the Bocaria. And I was like, oh, the Bocaria, that sounds cool. Is it like a sports stadium or something like that? Like, what are we going to be doing? Uh, And the guy who was the driver of our, uh, like, lorry that took us out, we all kind of just piled in the back of this flatbed lorry. No seatbelts or anything like that. They're not as tight on their rules. And so we went in, we were like, what's the Bocaria we were going? He's like, oh, it's the city dump. And, he, and we were like, oh, why are we going to sit here? Are you dumping some stuff? Have you got some stuff that needs dumping? He's like, no, no, we're going to visit the people that live on the dump. We are like, people live on the dump? And he's like, yeah, yeah, there's thousands of people who live on the dump. And it was really hard to imagine what that looks like until you get there. And the first thing that you recognize when you get there is just the smell. It's like 40 degree heat. And like all the rubbish from the city gets dumped in this one place. Uh, and it's, the smell hits you about half a mile away from it. You can start to smell it. And then as we got there, uh, you could see all the trucks coming in. And every time a truck came in, just hundreds of people would come flurrying out and round a truck and trying to grab the best bits of rubbish off the truck before it got dumped into the dump. It was the most insane thing I've ever seen. And all around the edge of the dump are little corrugated iron houses where people were living. And like a, a sort of like sea of those just heading back from the dump where people just lived their whole lives. They scavenged off the dump. They lived right on the edge of the dump. That was, that was their lives. And one of the things that we did, we took uh, these big bags of fresh bread. They cooked fresh bread in the orphanage that we were in and they cooked it fresh out of the oven, put them in these plastic bags and then sort of zip tied them up and we took them out. And they were like, go house to house and just give away some bread and some water to the people who were there. So we would go in and the smell was overwhelmingly bad. Like I've never smelled anything like it in my life. But when we opened the doors and said, hey, we have some bread and water for you. And when we came into the houses, the moment that we opened up those plastic sacks, it was like the smell of fresh bread just came out into the room. Like it changed the smell in the room. It was this like smell of fresh bread, which was, you know, that smell of fresh bread that's so lovely and inviting and warm. And it changed it. It changed what it smelled like. And actually people were like so appreciative of that moment where they got some fresh bread and some water. It was like there was hope and joy in the room for a few moments. I think when Paul's talking about us being a letter for this world, when he talks about us bringing a sweet aroma, I think it's similar to that. We're supposed to be like uh, the smell changers in this world. We're supposed to be the thermostats that change the temperature of the world around about us. Our letter penned by the most incredible author 
is supposed to change lives and transform the hearts of the world around about us to bring hope, to bring a climate of uh, joy and peace uh, and passion uh, where the world would look to so a whole bunch of other stuff that isn't that. But the reality is there's more than one person who'd like to be the author of our heart. In John chapter 10, verse 10, we often read this verse to talk about life to the full. It says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. And we often focus on the second part of that verse, which is that we would have life to the full. And we're like, yeah, we're all for the life to the full. But the first part of that verse is there's a thief that comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. It looks like life with an enemy whose main aim and objective is to steal, rob, and take away goodness, to kill and destroy all that is good. And sometimes we see that in our lives, don't we? We see an enemy in front of us who'd look to write a suppressing story on our heart, a story that says, you're not good enough. You never will be good enough. What you have to bring is not worthwhile. Just be anxious, be stressed, be angry. Be jealous. The enemy would love to do everything he can to make sure that the message of hope God wants to write on our hearts is suppressed and never makes its way into the world. And we can probably all think of situations where we've brought a bad smell into a room, maybe literally sometimes after a bad curry. Just a wee fart joke there, it's okay, Sunday mornings. But we can all think of those times where we've maybe been angry with a colleague for not delivering on time or we've put our spouse down in public or we've uh, reacted with jealousy or compared ourselves uh, and, and it's just brought out a reaction in us that just isn't nice, it isn't a sweet aroma. And we can almost just accept that. It's just like, oh, well, it's just part of life. You know, it's one of those things. I just get angry sometimes. I'm just jealous. I'm just, I'm just a competitive person. Like, it's not really my fault. It's just a thing. But I think Jesus' heart for us is that it wouldn't just be a thing. I think he wants to pen an entirely different story that helps us connect and share his victory with the world. So how do we make sure the pen is in the hand of Jesus increasingly more than the pen is in the hand of the enemy? Well, he kind of unpacks that in verse three. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. It's the spirit of God that makes the difference. It's being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, today's Pentecost. It's the day when uh, people uh, were filled with the Holy Spirit for, for almost the very first times the spirit descended and people experienced the spirit of the Lord in a way they'd never done before because Jesus had made that accessible for them. In the same way, that is still available for us today. Jesus promised to us is that his presence is with us. His Holy Spirit is accessible for us. His Holy Spirit is living within us right now in this moment when we invite the Holy Spirit to come and be within us. He comes. You don't have to pass a test. You know, there's not a Holy Spirit theory test that you've got to pass before he comes and dwells within us. Right now we can invite him in. So as we purposely pursue the presence of the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, it enables our hearts to become a personal letter to the world from a conquering yet sacrificial king. So I guess the question we want to ask ourselves today is what is written on our hearts? What are we allowing to be written on our hearts? Who are we allowing to write on our hearts? 
And so if we are God's people, a handwritten letter from the King of Kings, and he's writing a letter of grace and compassion and peace and hope and kindness and joy for this world, then who is it that's supposed to be reading our personal letters? You know, the world is a very broad definition. If we say, you know, we have a letter for the world, that's like uh, sending a letter in a postbox and just hoping it gets to the right person without an address on it. Part of this working it out is who is supposed to be reading my letter? Who is supposed to be reading the letter that Jesus has put on my heart? Who specifically needs to read the message of hope that Jesus has given me? I find the whole concept of us being God's messengers to the world absolutely fascinating. And again, one of the main reasons we're doing this series is to help us discover more of the truth that in our weakness, in our inadequacy, in our uh, shortcomings, that is when Jesus excels the most. That is when he's able to be most glorified because then it's not about us. It's not about us just being generally great people and really brilliant, but in our weakness, he, he does things. And then suddenly the world is like, oh, you're really weak, but Jesus is doing amazing things. And you're like, this Jesus guy must be all right, hey? He must be good. So then the question that stares us straight in the face is knowing that this is God's intention, who is getting to read your letter? I read an article on the BBC News website uh, last year that talked about how we as the UK distribute money around the world in aid. Uh, and it highlighted one of, the, one of the areas basically saying, how can we trust that our money is getting to the right places? And in this article, it focused on some money that we sent to Zambia in foreign aid a few years ago. Apparently, we sent $4.3 million that was meant to be for the improvement of lives of poor families in the country. Uh, and two weeks after we sent it, it mysteriously went missing. Uh, $4.3 million went missing. Uh, the Zambian government couldn't account for it. Uh, it just disappeared off the face of the planet. And the UK government at that point basically withdrew all further funding and said look we're not going to send any more money until you work out what's going on with this money and basically when they investigated it further it turned out that ministers in the government had established a bunch of shell companies uh, and had filtered the 4.3 million dollars away into special bank accounts for themselves all over different places uh, they'd held a whole bunch of money at the same time as that a whole bunch of government officials had upgraded uh, their cars uh, from kind of standard cars up to like Mercedes and BMWs and a whole bunch of stuff like that and it turned out that all these funds had been spent by the richest people in their country becoming slightly more rich again. Um, what had been tended to be a lifeline and a source of sustenance and joy for some of the most marginalized families in the country had somehow been kept and instead used for selfish purposes. And when I read that story, it started to make my blood boil. I was like, oh, that is so unfair. How could people possibly do that? That is, oh, I feel really angry about that. Uh, and often in those moments, God, uh, that's the moments when God speaks to me and just like brings me right back down to point number one on the humble scale again. Uh, and I just as I was getting angry about that money, I just heard him whisper in my ear, that's what it's like when you keep me from the world. And I was like, oh, no. We hold on to the means for this world to experience hope and joy and a future that is entirely and radically different from the one that they're currently looking at. We hold the keys to peace and to freedom and to a relationship with a father who loves more than anyone would ever be able to explain or know. And actually, when we're not sharing that good news with the world, it's like withholding the riches from the people who need it most. 
regardless of who it is in our lives, you know, sometimes the need for God's love is really obvious. And people who are maybe struggling with addiction or uh, in major poverty, other times it can be masked by riches, riches that provide enough comfort to just, just not need Jesus and no more. The reality is that every single person in this world needs Jesus. We all need to be given aware of our own sinfulness by a saviour who took it all on. Everyone needs grace. But in order to know we need grace, we need to know that grace is available for us. And so Paul crescendos into this wonderful glowing moment in this passage where he says, we, and not just we as in a couple of us in this room, not just we as in, you know, the really holy people who attend the prayer meetings and the uninterrupted worship evenings, not just we, those guys, we, us, you, me, everyone, each of us, every single person sitting in a seat in this hall today, we are his message of grace to the world. The message of hope scrawled on our hearts by the Holy Spirit is not to be tucked away in a drawer or put in a cupboard and just brought out when we need a little personal morale boost. We're designed to be read by everyone. And so the question is, who's reading your letter? Jim Elliott, who was uh, one of the first missionaries to head over to Africa, um, he, he said, uh, modern day missionary, sorry, he said this, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or the other on facing Christ in me. I love that description of that. Imagine we were living lives where when people encountered Jesus in us, they encountered him in such a way that they were like, I actually have a decision to make now. I can choose to never have Jesus in my life or I can choose to have Jesus in my life, but I know I have a decision to make. It's not like a wee mile marker on the road that says, you know, Jesus is somewhere down this road, you know, maybe 120 miles away. You know, at some point you can think about him. But actually, what would it look like for us to be the kinds of people that when people encounter us on their life's journey, they think, oh my goodness, I have to make a decision now. This, Jesus is alive and at work in this person's life in a way that it forces me to say yes or no in this moment. What does it look like for us to be unavoidable with the way Jesus is impacting our lives? In Galatians chapter two, verse 20, it says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ within us. The hope of glory. A letter written to our world and our responsibility is not to revive this reeling world in our own strength, but for Christ to be alive in us and present in such a way that people encounter him through us. It's not about us. It's about what Jesus is doing in us. And so I want to ask that question again. Who is currently getting to read your letter? Is it being delivered into the hands of everyone that Jesus intended it to be? Why don't we stand and we'll pray together.